Turn to John chapter 17. Please, I should say please. We're going to finish up this morning Jesus' high priestly prayer. Um, or, or the Lord's Prayer. This might be a better title for this. Um, we're going to finish this up, but I want to jump right in and read these last uh, six or seven verses. Let's start in verse 20, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Jesus, in praying, says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's stop here and pray again. Father, we would echo Jesus' prayer, um, that we would be marked by love. Not love as the world defines it, but love as you define it. The self-sacrificial love that is best seen in your love for us. Lord, that we would be made into Christ-likeness, conformed to the image of Christ. Father, help us to love, to love one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. We are at a um, we're at a point in American churchianity that we have not seen, at least not in my lifetime. The American church is divided. It's divided over masks. The church is divided over the extent of the risks of COVID nineteen. The church is divided over racism. The church is divided over supporting or defunding the police. In California this week, the governor issued an order that made it illegal to sing or chant in church, even if you wear a mask, and the church is divided over whether or not to submit to the government on that order. And to put it frankly, um, pastors are bearing the brunt of the division. If they speak out about systemic racism, either acknowledging it or denying it, they're told to stick to exposition and otherwise be quiet. If they stay quiet, they're told that silence is violence. If they mandate masks during worship or make masks optional, people express their opinions and tell them that they will not be attending unless it's done their way. Add this to the normal anxiety that they face, the shepherding of Christ's people who were purchased with Christ's own blood and for whom the pastor will be held accountable by God. And I'm telling you this um, so that you will understand that not only is the American church divided, but I also want you to understand, maybe in a bit of a selfish way, but I want you to understand this, pastors are dropping like flies. Until the last couple of years, I had never heard of a pastor committing suicide. 
I'm sure it happened, but I'd never heard of it. Now I hear about it all the time. Add that to the normal pattern of burnout, disqualification due to immorality, stress-related health concerns, obesity, insomnia, the list goes on and on. But as the Apostle Paul would say, hear me say this, I'm talking like a madman. Churches are under attack from within and from without. It's not just pastors who are bearing the brunt. The sexual revolution is quickly gaining steam, and so churches are losing their leases in some places because of their stance on biblical marriage. Christian business owners are soon going to find themselves in the crosshairs of the LGBTQ movement like never before due to recent evil Supreme Court decisions. Christian teachers, students, and parents in the public school system are going to face pressure like they haven't yet faced. Pressure from the world to conform and pressure from brothers and sisters in Christ to get out. Christian musicians whose music has been a source of both entertainment and even ministry to us have continued to publicly and proudly abandon their faith. And I have no doubt that they will take some young, spiritually immature fans with them. And here I have to say this. Brothers, these things should not be. Brethren, these things should not be. And I need to be sure that I say this so that you don't misunderstand. It is a joy to serve Logansville Church. And by and large, the church is not divided. We do have different opinions on all of these things, I'm sure. But we don't, have, we don't let those divisions or those differences stir up anger or division. You have been gracious to me as we have attempted to navigate some of these waters, and I'm sure that you have been gracious to one another, and will continue to be. But we still need to be prepared for what we will be facing in the coming months and years. In the beginning of Jesus' upper room discourse, This last teaching by Jesus of his disciples on on the evening before his arrest, as he began the, the formal teaching portion of this section of Scripture, he started by assuring his disciples that he wasn't simply leaving them, but rather that he was going to prepare a place for them. So back in chapter 14, those first few verses, he says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And then, of course, when he is questioned about this, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He responded by saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And all through this teaching, John chapters 14, 15, 16, and into this prayer in chapter 17, Jesus continually offers them assurance and and strength. So just listen to Just listen to some of the things that he said to these men that night. He said this, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, a spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. I have said these things to you to, you to keep you from falling away. And When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Of course, there are also instructions and commands mixed in with his comfort. Listen to a few of these instructions or commands. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. But now as he finishes his prayers, he closes out. Really, this final closing prayer of his ministry before his arrest. Um, Again, right after this, Judas And the authorities will arrive and he's going to be arrested. It's right there in chapter 18, verse 1. It begins. As he finishes praying, he circles back to the beginning. You can see from this prayer that he genuinely desires to be with his disciples. That's what he says. But let me also point out that, that, that one thing that's clear from this prayer is that Jesus is prepared to die. He wants to be with his disciples, but he is also prepared to die. The other gospel writers, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all show us another scene that that John leaves out. This other scene is is Jesus' private prayer on the Mount of Olives. So if you compare those three books, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see that Matthew records more of that actual prayer. Um, Mark gives a quick version. That is how Mark operates. He's immediately, is one of the key words in Mark. And Luke shows a little bit more details of his emotional state as opposed to the prayer itself. Let me read Luke's version. Turn over to Luke 22. Luke 22, verses 39 to 46. Luke twenty two thirty nine says this, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus is weary. 
He's even, we might even say, anxious. And yet he's obedient. But why doesn't John tell us about that scene? I think it's because John is focused on on preparing Jesus' disciples. He's focused on what Jesus is saying to them to strengthen and encourage them for what they will face. Remember, do you remember why John even wrote his gospel? He tells us explicitly in chapter 20, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. But I wanted to bring your attention to this other prayer here in Luke 22, and Matthew and Mark each record some version of this. I wanted to bring your attention to this other prayer because it gives us a glimpse of what Jesus is preparing them for. They saw his agony and distress. They saw the blood that that dripped from his brow as sweat. They needed this comfort. They needed this assurance that he's praying for here in John chapter 17, even if they don't realize it at the time. Remember, they're just there celebrating Passover, having dinner with him. They need this assurance, even if they don't understand that they need it yet. And as he finishes this prayer, we can really see Jesus' heart for his own. His heart for his disciples and, and for the church. In fact, let's take each verse here. We're going to look at 24, 25, and 26. We'll take each verse as a separate point. So in verse 24, we can see Christ's desire. Verse 24 is Christ's desire. Verse 25, we can see his message, Christ's message. And in verse 26 is Christ's goal. So Christ's desire. Look at verse 24 again. So John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So consider this question before we go too much further here. What is the source of your hope? What's the source of your hope? Paul told the Corinthian church, when he was explaining the gospel in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he gets at the resurrection of Christ, and he says, if in Christ we, we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. A generation ago, thanks in large part to probably the Beatles and the counterculture movement of the 60s, People were looking for hope in things like reincarnation, Hinduism. In our generation, especially among celebrities and in certain realms of education, Buddhism is popular. We're looking for hope in something. But the general man on the street is looking for hope in this life, right? I can almost guarantee that if you were to ask people, say, at the lake today with as hot as it's been these last week and is going to be this next week, I can almost guarantee that if you were to ask people at the lake where they found their hope, it would be in their boat or in the water. We look for hope in comfort and recreation, Americans especially. We look for hope in working for the weekend, right? Maybe you could find people, if you asked, who would say that they were looking for hope in justice, But these things leave us wanting. We want the new model when it comes out of whatever. 
We want to address the next cause that upsets us, whatever that might be. And while there's nothing at all wrong with boats or causes, Christians have a different source of hope, the hope of glory. Colossians 1.27 says this, To them, that is the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that brings us to the next question. On what ground or grounds can I be certain of the glories of heaven? On what grounds can we be certain that we're going to heaven? And the answer to that question cannot be found within yourself. It can't. We're called in the scriptures to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith, but the certainty does not come from ourselves, it comes from Christ's word. For example, in Jesus' closing, closing prayer, as he intercedes as the great high priest for his people, he prays in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He desires that they would, we, we would be with him. The King James Version actually uses the word will there instead of desire. It is Jesus' will that his own people would be with him where he is. So, so let's bring this together. The hope of salvation, the certainty that you will see the glory of heaven is found upon the rock of the saving will of God the Son for the people given to him by the Father. The certainty of our salvation is in Jesus' will, his desire here. One old dead Presbyterian said this, When you see that high priest coming up from the altar and standing before the throne, and in the very midst of the throne saying to his father, Father, I will. Are we not safe? Let the devil howl. Let him come with all his retinue from the depths of hell and rage and raven all over this earth. Let the world enter into fatal conspiracy with the powers of darkness and rage around us. And in the midst of this peril, in the power of intercession, in the royalty and in the grace of our ascending head, we are safe. Christ's desire is that you... His friend, brethren, child of God, member of his flock, purchased by his blood, his desire and will is for you to be with him in glory for eternity. Therefore, if you are his, you are safe. I've said it before, this prayer is reliable. The Father always answers the prayers of his children for their good and his glory. Jesus himself just said back in chapter 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Do you think the Father will answer the Son's prayer? The Father will answer this prayer. 
And if you are his, you will see his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory given by the Father out of love. Christ's desire, his will, is to bring his people to be with him because of God's love. Let me put this another way. Jesus is longing for the fellowship of the saints. Do you? Do you long for the fellowship of the saints? Do you miss it? Did did you miss it when we couldn't participate? Jesus is longing for the fellowship of the saints. I want you to think about what Matthew Henry said about this. About this passage, he says, Christ here speaks as if he did not count his own happiness complete unless he had his elect to share him, uh, to share with him in it. Christ here speaks as if he did not count his own happiness complete unless he had his elect to share with him in it. Can you see that the love of God just wraps all of this together? Look again at verses 23 and 24. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The Father loves us as he has loved the Son, and he loved the Son from before the foundation of the world. That should remind you of something. It should remind you of the glorious truth of Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Christ's desire for the fellowship of the saints drives him to be our propitiation, which by definition costs him. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
This is his message. It's verse 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Christ's message. All of Christ's work points to this. Knowledge of God. Christ knows the Father. And the elect know the Father through the Son. But the world does not know God. And so Christ is sending his disciples into the world to proclaim God's love as manifest in Christ. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And remember, he, he said back in chapter 13, John 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In another place, Jesus asked, he, he is asked, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love is to be the mark, uh, a mark of the people of God, a defining characteristic, because he first loved us. Yet to some, the greatest threat to Christian love is biblical truth, especially as seen in doctrinal distinctives. Some passionately proclaim that doctrine divides. Of course it's important, but God cares far more for our deeds than our creeds. Doctrine divides, but love unites. Could this be right? Is doctrine far down the list of important characteristics of Christians? While love stands at the very top? The very most important centerpiece of the Christian faith? Those who say this will say that there are two kinds of Christians. Those who show love and those who only care about policing doctrine. This is a false dichotomy. In these final two verses here, verse 25 and 26, Jesus indicates that the source of love among God's people is knowledge of the truth about the Father. The fact that the conclusion to this prayer teaches us three things about his message as it relates to love even. Let me show you. First, knowledge of God is a source of Christian love. Knowledge of God is a source of Christian love. This is so basic, right? We need to understand this. Knowledge of God is a source of Christian love. In verse 26, he says simply, I made known to them your name. As we saw a few weeks ago, this this isn't simply that he told them God's name. God God already did that to Moses back at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God already revealed who he was and has been revealing all through the scriptures. This isn't simply about the name Yahweh. It's about the nature and character of God. He doesn't just tell them about Yahweh, though. He manifests God incarnate, God in the flesh. John told us in his introduction, all the way back in the first chapter, he says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's Jesus. 
Knowledge of God is a source of Christian love. And even as he prays, he highlights two aspects of God's character. That we would know this about God so that we may understand his love. And he starts with, O righteous Father. O righteous Father. God is righteousness. He's not worldly. He's not of the world to which Christ is sending his disciples as messengers of the good news. God is completely other, right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message that we heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is righteousness and he offers his righteousness to sinners as a gift of grace. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is righteousness. And the second aspect of his character that we can see here is when he prays this, O righteous Father, Father. See, not only does he offer his righteousness to sinners as a gift of grace, but he also gives us the right to be called children of God. Romans 8, 15, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6 says essentially the same thing. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the relationship that we as Christians have with the almighty God. Not only does he give us his righteousness, but he also calls us his own children. He gives us the privilege to to boldly approach his throne of grace and call him Father. And so this prayer teaches us that the knowledge of God is the source of Christian love because he first loved us. It also teaches us that knowing God is what makes a difference between Christ's people and the world. Again, this seems pretty basic, but we so often miss these things. Knowing God is what makes the difference between Christ's people and the world. Look at verse 25 again. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. The reason that Jesus was about to suffer and die is because the world did not believe that he was the revelation of God. Specifically, it was because God's chosen people, the Israelites, rejected Jesus as the Son of God. John tells us that at the beginning. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They have, by and large, rejected the message of Christ. But here's the thing. They didn't reject everything Jesus said or did. Have you ever thought about this? Remember the the crowds that followed him all over the Sea of Galilee after the feeding of the 5,000? Remember the crowds who brought their sick and afflicted to him to heal? They loved his signs and wonders. Some of them loved the idea that he would be their king and finally defeat the Roman oppressors. What they didn't like was being called sinners, lawbreakers, What they didn't like were his calls to repentance. What they didn't like were his teachings that that they were lawbreakers, even in their hearts, if not in their actions. What they didn't like was the idea that a simple son of a scandalous young mother could be the Holy One of God, the Messiah. But you can't 
You can't pitch, pick and choose which teachings of Jesus you like and don't like or reject and still claim to be a Christian. And since Jesus is God, and since it's all God's word, not just the words in red, you can't love Jesus' teachings and reject Paul's. That's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. Knowing Christ is receiving Christ. And to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So knowledge of God is a source of Christian love. Knowing God is what makes the difference between Christ's people and the world. And then finally, the the third thing about his message as it relates to love is just simply this. He will continue to proclaim truth that his people will grow in love. And, And this is also his goal. Look at verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Imagine, imagine removing love from Christianity. Do you know what you would have? You'd essentially have pretty much the same thing as Islam. Or even what has become of Judaism, if you remove love from Christianity. And I'm talking the love that we've been talking about. Imagine taking love out of the church. Unfortunately, it's probably easy for some if you try. Imagine taking love out of the church. Imagine these marks of a Christian that we've talked about over the past few weeks without love. What would joy look like without Christian or Christ-like love? Some have suggested it would probably look like hedonism. What would holiness and truth look like without Christ-like love? Probably self-righteousness. What about mission? What would mission look like without Christ-like love? Well, you get imperialism, domination, and not the freedom that comes through Christ. Unity without love is what you have in places like North Korea. Or what you see in so many cults that demand a fanatical devotion. Unity without love turns to tyranny. You're forced to be united. But it is love that binds all of these things together. It is Christ-like love that binds all of this together. We love because he first loved us. And so when we love God as Father, the result is joy. Love and devotion for Jesus brings holiness. That's part of the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Or 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Love for God's word marks us with the truth. Love for the lost means that we will be marked by mission. Love for one another, the fellowship of the saints, means that we will be marked by unity. 
Jesus prays, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And, And that brings us right back to the beginning, to the very beginning. When they first arrived at this dinner, in John chapter 13, verse 1, before he washed their feet. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end of this prayer. He loves us to the end. And then he washed their feet. And then he went to the cross. And in the meantime, he said to them, For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. The disciples of Jesus Christ are to be marked, not by division and contention and pressure, but by this kind of self-sacrificing, Christ-like love. Having loved his own, he loved us to the end. Do you know when the end is? We haven't seen it yet. He loves us. He loves us. And we are to be marked by love. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It is a joy to serve this church. Let's pray. Lord, it is my prayer that we would be marked by love. I am grateful for the love that we see in one another, that I see in this church. Love for you, love for your word, love for um, families, love for one another. I am grateful, Lord, and it is my prayer that we would only continue to grow in this love. That we would love because you first loved us. Mark us by love, Lord. Help us to stand out from the world, that we would be sanctified, that we would be set apart, that we would be holy, that we would be seen as that because of our love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.